If you could grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be reading from verses 13 to 17. There should be some Bibles in the pews um, in front of you. If there isn't, then feel free to open up your smartphone and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Before I do that, though, some exciting news in the life of the church family, as well as Alpha starting on the 4th of February, which is very, very exciting, and our midweek gathering starting again this coming Tuesday. I'm delighted to say that two of our um, church family here at St. Thomas's got, well, actually, there's two bits of news. First is two of the, two of the church family got married over the Christmas break. Beth and Gary, do you want to stand? <laughs> And two of the church family are engaged to be married. Maddie and Sam, do you want to stand? <laughs> Sam proposed to Maddie on a beach just out, well, just after Christmas, wasn't it? Which we're so excited about. So do go and say congratulations to them at the end. As Lee said, welcome back to you if um, you've been away over the Christmas period and the New Year period. As Lee said, Ellie and I have been away. Um, I took Ellie on a surprise holiday to Egypt. She found out where we were going when we got to the airport, um, which was lovely. So we've just had a week in the sun and feel very refreshed. And if you have been away, we have missed you so much. Um, it's not the same without you. And we're just so pleased that you are back with us. Now today, we're, as I've said, we're looking at um, these verses which should come up on the screen. Matthew chapter 3, um, verses 13 to 17 together. So let me read this to us. And um, just to say that lots of the church family are going to be looking at, at the, lots of the church family throughout the world are going to be looking at this today. Um, Anglicans, Catholics, Methodists are celebrating today Jesus' baptism. And so that's why we're looking at these verses together. So Matthew chapter 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Great. So this afternoon, we, we are looking at some of the most extraordinary verses in the Bible. And I'm just trying to get my clicker to work so I know what I'm actually saying. Here we go. So Jesus' baptism. Now, I think that, as I've said, these are some of the most extraordinary verses in all of Scripture. So be excited and be expectant for God to speak to you as we go through these verses together this afternoon. The reason I'm so excited is that in the baptism of Jesus, we see the very essence of who God is. We see love, empowerment, relationship, family, affirmation, mission, all just in these few 
verses. But first, some context, because the context makes sense of why Jesus' baptism happens in the way that it does and why it happens in the place that it happens in Matthew's gospel. So if you look just a few verses earlier in your Bibles, the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, you'll see that Matthew invites us, introduces us, sorry, to somebody called John the Baptist. And he's been going around proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins, and he's been baptizing people with water. And this has made some of the religious authorities around him, like the religious leaders of the time, very angry. He's got into some debates with the religious leaders. And if you um, look just earlier on in Matthew chapter 3, he even calls these religious leaders, um, you brood of vipers. It's pretty strong language from John the Baptist. And he tells them, look, you're upset now with me baptizing with water, but there's somebody coming after me who will not baptize just with water, but also with the Holy Spirit. And he's the one that all of the all of the scriptures and all of the Old Testament has been talking about. And it's in that context that Matthew introduces us to this whole thing of Jesus's baptism. So verse 13, Jesus comes from Galilee to be baptized by John. And John tries to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. Now this disagreement between John and Jesus as to whether Jesus should be baptised. And there's been lots of books written about this, lots of debates, um, theological debates about why um, these two had this discussion. And I actually think it's a perfectly understandable statement from John the Baptist to Jesus. I don't need to be baptising you. You need to be baptising me. And it's understandable for two reasons. Firstly, John has been baptising people for, um, for the forgiveness of sins. He's been, preaching a God, he's been preaching news of repentance. And here's Jesus, and he's perfect. He's the one that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to. And he doesn't need forgiveness of sin. He's got nothing to repent from. And so John is deeply troubled by why Jesus would come to him for baptism. So that's the first reason John is perplexed. The second reason that John is perplexed is that he's just been speaking about Jesus to the religious leaders and saying that there's one coming who is so amazing that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And yet here is this one, this Messiah, and he's asking if John will baptize him. What on earth is going on here? Well, Jesus answers John in verse 15 and says, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Jesus needed to be baptised to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does this mean? Well, let us just think about what baptism actually is just for a moment. We've got Flo with us, just a few rows back from me, who was baptised um, not so long ago here at St. Thomas, St. Thomas's. And when Tom and Flo were baptised, you'll remember if you were here that, or maybe you won't remember, depends how much attention you were paying. Um, but I said that baptism is a little bit like a wedding, a funeral and a birthday party all rolled into one. It's a birthday party because baptism is about new life. It's about being born again. We read about that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It's a little bit like a funeral because baptism is about dying to self 
and rising to new life in Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And it's a little bit like a wedding because it, at, through baptism, you join the bride of Christ, the church. And so there's all of these different things going on in baptism. Now, as I've said, Jesus didn't need any of these things. So why do it? Why does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness if that's what the Bible teaches baptism is? Well, firstly, Jesus' baptism is about new creation. So for those of you that know the Bible story, and if you're new to church tonight, don't worry if you don't if you don't know all the verses that I'm going to be talking about tonight, it's absolutely fine. I'll explain it as we go through. But right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God forms the earth out of, out of the waters of chaos. There's water. And the Spirit is hovering over the water. The rabbis around Jesus' day would have interpreted Genesis 1, and they said that um, the Spirit was fluttering over the water like a dove. Just a few chapters later in Genesis, there's a flood. God sends this flood and washes all of the earth clean. And there's a man called Noah who takes two of every species onto his boat and a group of human beings. And through that ark, he saves all of humanity. Humanity is renewed. And that renewal is confirmed in the story of Noah and the ark by a dove. Now here at Jesus' baptism, Jesus goes under the water of judgment, under the waters, into the waters of baptism, which is about, you know, repentance. He comes up out of the water and the spirit rests on him in the form of a dove. Now, for those of us that know the Bible narrative and the Bible story, Matthew is screaming at us through his gospel. Jesus is the new creation. Jesus is the new creation by which all of us will be restored. If you like, Jesus is the true and better Noah. And everybody who becomes caught up in Jesus will be saved. Baptism, that's what baptism is about. It's about new creation. The second reason this fulfills all righteousness, unless you might have to click because I can't get this thing to go. The second reason is that um, Jesus' baptism is about a new exodus. Now, this is echoed in the song that we sing a lot here at St. Thomas's. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. For all of church history, Christians have associated baptism with the exodus narrative. So if you, again, if you um, cast your mind back, if, for those of you that know the Old Testament story, God's people were kept captive and slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed, they were trapped. And the way that God freed them was that he led them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted, God's people went through, the Red Sea came back together, and all of their enemies were either drowned in the Red Sea or stuck, on, stuck in Egypt. But God's people were on their way to the promised land. The song that we sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. And the bridge goes like this. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. You drowned my fear in perfect love. You made me rise so I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. Baptism is about our exodus. Your baptism was about your personal exodus. In Jesus being baptised, 
Matthew is again screaming at us that Jesus is the true and better Moses who has come to free his people and set them free from oppression and fear and on their journey to the promised land. The third reason that Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness is that it points to the cross and the resurrection. Trevor Lawrence, a Presbyterian theologian, said this, the dynamics of Jesus' baptism are the dynamics of Jesus' cross. The dynamics of Jesus' baptism are the dynamics of Jesus' cross. And this makes total sense when you think about Jesus' baptism, or even when you think about the later teaching that Jesus would give about his death and resurrection in the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus talks about his death and resurrection being his baptism. That even though he's already been baptised here in Matthew chapter 3. He says that because his baptism here was a foreshadowing, a pointing to the cross and resurrection. In Jesus going under the water, he was proclaiming that he'd come to identify with my sin and with your sin. In coming up out of the water, he was proclaiming new life and freedom and resurrection. His baptism is literally a picture of what he came to do on the cross and in rising to new life. Now in saying all of this, Jesus in being baptised is actually making some pretty fundamental claims as to who he is. He's saying, I am the new creation. I am the way for your, to your exodus. I am the new Adam, the new Noah, the new Moses. I am the only way to righteousness and to life. Now, the second reason that Jesus, in being baptised, Jesus is um, fulfilling all righteousness is that in being baptised, Jesus is declaring that there is a way for all to be made righteous. There's a way for all to be made right with God. Now, one of the reasons that the Pharisees were so upset with John was that he was redefining in his baptism of repentance the community of faith and who was in and who wasn't in. So the religious leaders thought that you had to be Jewish in order to be part of the community of faith. If you were a man, you needed to be circumcised, but you had to be Jewish. You were born into this community of faith. But now John the Baptist is gathering all kinds of people around him, different races, different nationalities, different life backgrounds, different futures, different occupations, different social economic status. And he's saying that the way into the community of faith isn't your nationality, it's not your achievements, it's whether you'll repent and believe. That's the way in now. It's not about your race. Now in John proclaiming this, there needed to be a way for these people to be justified. They would need to do something to mark this. If you think about all of God's promises in the Bible, they're all, all of them come attached with a covenant sign. So God's promise that he'll never flood the whole earth again. The covenant sign, a rainbow. Being a member of God's people in the Old Testament, the covenant sign, circumcision. What is it now? The sign that's attached to us belonging to the community of faith is baptism. In Jesus being baptised, he's identifying with his baptism, all of us. He's identifying with us. He's joining fallen humanity for whom he was providing righteousness by sharing their 
baptism. The way is open to all. Now, this is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So those are the reasons why Jesus was baptised. That's why John relented and gave in and baptised Jesus. But what happens as Jesus is baptised is truly truly remarkable. So look at verses 16 and 17 with me. I'll just read them out to us again. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now, the reason that these two verses are so remarkable, um, well, there's, there's three reasons, I think. The first reason is this. It's a glorious picture of the Trinity. We get an amazing glimpse into the very heart of God in these two verses. The Son, Jesus, is coming to be baptised. The Holy Spirit descending on him in the form of the dove and the Father speaking words of affirmation and empowerment over Jesus. Just as in Genesis 1, all three persons of the Godhead are at play in these two verses. And Matthew gives us this amazing, intimate glimpse into, relation, into the relationships that are going on. The Father enveloping the Son with affirmation. The Holy Spirit empowering the Son to do his mission propelling him towards the cross and to resurrection. Now, these amazing relationships have been going on in the Godhead for all time. Think about it. For all of eternity, these relationships have been happening. The Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit, loving the Father, loving the Spirit, loving the Son, loving the Father. And that's been going on for all of time. And Matthew's given us a little glimpse of that now. Relationship is at the heart of who God is. A God who is not three and just one, and just one and not three, could not create a world that's full of relationship and love and affirmation and empowerment. If we were to believe in a Unitarian God, for example, a God who isn't triune, there would be no reason at all for that God to create human beings with the capacity for relationship. Because he doesn't know relationships, so there's no point in, he can't create something that he doesn't know. And yet our God, these amazing relationships that have been going on for all of time, he's created us in his image with the capacity for relationship and love and affirmation and empowerment. Our God has been doing these things forever. The second reason that these verses are so extraordinary is that it's a glorious picture of true family. Now, family is so important, isn't it, in the understanding of who we are. Family is supposed to be the safe place in which we can work out who we are as people, where we can receive affirmation and love and acceptance. 
And yet we look around us and there's an identity crisis happening in our land at the moment. Families are in a mess. There's high divorce rates. Increasingly, young people at um, schools and churches and all kinds of different people working up and down um, the country, um, they, they, these organisations would say that increasingly they're working from with young people that come from what the government would call broken homes, broken families. Families, as I've said, are supposed to provide a secure and safe place for us to work out who we are, to work out our identity. Now, Jesus knew exactly who he was in terms of his family, the community that is the Trinity. We've already, we see, don't we, in these two verses, the father speaking over Jesus, here is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus knew exactly who he was. But we don't always know who we are, do we? We doubt. We struggle to believe the promises of God. We struggle to believe that we've been adopted into his family, that we're forgiven, that we're set free, that we're chosen. A few years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury um, hit the headlines. Um, it was just before Easter, and the tabloids had an absolute field day. The Archbishop had recently discovered that the man that he thought was his biological father was indeed actually not his biological father. And this was leaked to the press, and the tabloids ran this story on it. Now, it was a complete shock for the Archbishop of Can Canterbury, Justin Welby. Lots of the tabloids were running with the headline, the Archbishop is not who he thought he was. Well, that's not how Justin Welby saw it. This is what he said in a statement. This revelation about my biological dad has, of course, been a surprise. But in my life and in our marriage, Caroline and I have had far worse. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. At the very start of my inauguration service three years ago, a young member of the Canterbury Cathedral congregation said, we greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. Who are you and why do you request entry? To which I responded, I am Justin, a servant of Jesus Christ, and I come as one seeking the grace of God to travel with you in his service together. What has changed? The Archbishop asked. The reply he gave to that question, absolutely nothing. A journalist on reading these words from Justin Welby asked him whether he'd found in God the father whom he had somehow lacked. And Justin Welby replied by saying, yes. It wasn't part of the package that I thought I was being sold. I thought that it was all about forgiveness and repentance and new life, which of course are all very important. But finding in the midst of looking after my father that here was a father who was perfectly dependable and utterly true and who knew me deeply and loved me more certainly was a surprise beyond belief. It was absolutely wonderful. Your family background, if it's been a little messy, 
does not have to determine your worth, does not have to determine how loved you feel. You've been adopted into the family of God. Now, we've had a very public reminder, haven't we, over the last three days that earthly families can be a little messy. Think about the fallout that's being played literally all across our television screens and on our smartphones and in our newspapers about Harry and Meghan's decision to step down from being senior royals. Even they aren't perfect. And it reminds us that all of our families are a little messy. Now, some of you here have not had the perfect family experience. Some of you have had experiences that have scarred you and um, molded you in more ways than you even know. Some, for some of us, that's been positive. For some of us, it's been negative. But if that is you, we would love to pray with you tonight. But the truth from these verses is this, that through Jesus, we become part of the family of God. That's what baptism is about. We're adopted into his family so much so that God calls us his children. Paul says in the New Testament that we're co-heirs with Christ. In other words, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you and me if we're to be found in Christ. Now that is amazing. Now if that wasn't enough, not only are we drawn into relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through baptism. But we also get a new family here on earth that's going to last us all the way through into eternity. We become members of the church family, the family of God. So take a look around. Look at your neighbor. We are family. Now, we are family in the truest sense of the word. One theologian put it like this, the waters, uh, for Jesus, the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. In other words, when we think of family, we should think of church first. Not that our biological families are not important, they're incredibly important. But the church is the most amazing family ever. Look at how diverse it is. Different backgrounds, different stages of life, from different parts of the world. And yet here we all are, united as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is the most amazing expression of family that has ever, ever been thought of. So at the start of 2020, as the leader of this particular church family here in Newcastle, can I ask that we commit to one another afresh at the start of this year? that we commit to supporting one another. We commit to loving one another. We commit to praying for one another. We commit to doing life together and to reaching this amazing, amazing city and region with the good news of Jesus. And we'll do it together as family. It's the best thing. 
Now, a friend of mine in the States, Christy Wimber, just posted on social media earlier today about the fastest growing church in the world. And it was just a link to a news article. And this news article says that this church that's growing quicker than anywhere else in the world has no buildings, it has no central organization, and it's illegal to be a Christian in this place where this church is growing. And the church is in Iran. Now, why is it growing? Why is the church growing so much in Iran? Because they know more than most, our brothers and sisters in Iran, that they are family. If you're following Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian in Iran, um, the likelihood is that you've been disowned by your own biological family. And so the only family that you have left are your brothers and your sisters in church. If you call yourself a Christian in Iran, it's very likely that you could be locked up, that you could be punished, that you could be flogged. The only thing that you have to keep you going is the support of your church family. Now, my prayer, because I know we're still only a few couple of months, three months old here um, at St. Thomas's, my prayer is that we'd grow to know that we are family together and that we'd know in a really deep and powerful and profound way that we need one another. If you're a student here at St. Thomas's, we desperately need you in our church family because we've got so much to learn from you. If you're a parent, we desperately need you in our church family so we can learn what it looks like to um, bring up children and to, well, we need your kids because they teach us so much as well. If you've been following Jesus for a while, we desperately need you in our church family so we can see what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully over a few decades. We need one another. We are the family that God has called us to be. This is why our friends at church often feel like family more or as much or even more sometimes than our own biological family. I know that we feel that about people that we've journeyed with for a very long time who are Christians, Lee and Rachel, for example. Probably the closest thing that we have to family. There's no biological tie, but there is a blood tie, the blood of Jesus Christ. We are family. Now, as if that wasn't enough, in Jesus' baptism, there's one final thing that is amazing. Jesus' baptism is a glorious picture of true affirmation. Jesus was affirmed by the Father before he started any of his public ministry. This comes before Jesus has raised anybody from the dead. This comes before Jesus has healed any number of people. This comes before Jesus has taken any amount of food and multiplied it to feed 5,000 or more people. This comes before Jesus has cast out any number of, de of demons. Jesus was affirmed by the Father before he did any of that. Before he did anything, Jesus heard these words, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the beauty of baptism is this, that what is true for Jesus in his baptism is also true for us in our baptism. That means before I do anything, every single day, before I do anything, before I preach, 
before I pray, before I lead a staff meeting, before I write an email, before I meet up with somebody for a pastoral meeting, before I mentor somebody, whatever it is that I'm doing that day, before I do anything, God speaks over me, Ben, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Before I do anything, before you do anything, God speaks over you, Emma, you're my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Mark, you're my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Before you even lift a finger. Now, this truth is not based on our performance. It's not based on how well we're doing at university. It's not based on how much money we have. It's not based on whether we got that job or not. It's not based on whether we got that promotion or not. It's not based on whether we think we're doing a good job with our kids or not. God speaks that over us if we're in Christ before we do anything. Now, this seems like a pretty simple concept. But I actually think it's one of the hardest things to get our heads around. And the reason it's one of the hardest things for us to get our heads around is because the world does affirmation in the complete opposite way. So in the world's eyes, you're only somebody if you've achieved something. I can remember, I don't know if I've told some of you this story before, when I was training to be a vicar in Cambridge, I was sat in a coffee shop one day writing an essay um, for university. And there was a girl on the table next to me who was in tears on the phone. um, And she was speaking to her dad. And her dad said that he wouldn't continue funding her university degree at Cambridge if she didn't get a first that year. She was in her second year and she'd have to pull out if she didn't get the marks. And she was in, she was in, well, she was in ag- like emotional agony over this because she knew she wasn't going to get a first. She felt like she had to achieve in order to be something for her dad. We're taught inadvertently by some of the education systems in our country that Performance is the most important thing. Exam results. I can remember sitting sats when I was in year two. For lots of us, we base our identity on whether we've done what we've always have dreamed of doing and whether we've hit the target, the impossibly high targets that we've set for ourselves. The world says achieve, get your identity. Keep driving home for that identity, and then somehow you'll feel accepted. The problem is, though, at any moment, it can be taken away from you. Again, we've seen this played very public, played out very publicly across our television screens in the last three days. Harry and Meghan, who two and a half, three years ago, when they got married, could do no wrong. They had this amazing royal wedding. Billions of people tuned in from all over the world to watch it. They were the new darlings of the royal family. Now, the vitriol and hate that they're getting is unbelievable. Is there another way? Well, in Jesus' baptism, we see that there is. God accepts us before we do anything. That sustains us. It's that which gives us our identity. And then we can achieve out of that place, not in order to earn it, but just because we know that we're already loved and accepted. The only worldview that offers this is the gospel. Religion doesn't offer this. Secular society doesn't offer this. Nothing offers this except for the radical free love of Jesus Christ. This year, some of us need to stop living for 
Jesus and just start living with him. A vineyard pastor who I was hearing preach a few years ago put it like this. Stop work, Stop focusing on working for God. Instead, focus on being a work of God. Not that work isn't important. It is. But our identity comes first. Now, for those of you that are sitting exams over the next few weeks... Don't hear me say that your exams aren't important. This isn't like a get-off-the-hook-for-revision sermon. But what I am saying is this, that the affirmation that God gives you, the sense of love and acceptance, does not come from your performance. It comes from being in Christ. It comes through what he has done for you. If you take anything away from these verses tonight, take away this, that every morning when you wake up, you hear the words, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus' baptism is a picture for all of us tonight. And I think we need to do some business with God and respond to these amazing, amazing verses. So the band are going to come up and can I invite all of us to stand?